we don't have an agenda. You made the game board, you made the rules. We're trying to advise people on what are the smartest and dumbest things to do on the court. And given the rules, this is right and this is stupid. Welcome to the National Podcast of Texas. I'm Andy Langer. This week on the show, Kirk Goldsberry, an NBA analyst at ESPN and a professor at the University of Texas who teaches sports analytics within the Macomb School of Business. While serving as a visiting professor at Harvard in 2011, Goldsberry, who was specializing in mapping and cartography, began an effort to map NBA shooting data. What started with him retrieving five seasons worth of shooting data meaning where shots were taken on the court, and building a database that included over a million NBA field goal attempts, wound up supercharging basketball analytics. Through data visualization and spatial analysis, his findings, particularly about the three-point shot, were groundbreaking. In 2012, he published his first work on basketball analytics at the MIT Sloan Conference. And after writing about his findings, he went full-time for the now-defunct sports site Grantland. Then he went team-side as the head analyst for Team USA Basketball and as a vice president of strategic research for the San Antonio Spurs. Goldsberry left the Spurs in September of last year to return to writing and teaching, and the writing part is mostly why we're here. Earlier this month, he released what may be the most important and certainly the most buzzed about sports book of 2019, Sprawl Ball, a visual and narrative portrait of the NBA. This is Kirk Goldsberry. Welcome. Thank you. As blurbs go, this is a pretty good front of the book blurb. On the cover, it <laughs> says, this guy's quest to track every shot in the NBA changed basketball forever. It's a bunch of baloney. <laughs> You're not buying it. No. There is evidence, though, that what you've done with analytics, with tracking every shot, and we'll get to that in a second, has changed the game. For sure. You buy that. The community I'm a part of has, has definitely changed the, the way people think and reason about the sport of basketball, for sure. Which then has a trickle-down effect and changes the way the game is actually played. Correct. I would agree with that, yeah. The statistics or the, the data was out there. Right. You collected the data, charted it, and discovered the details that are now changing the game. I don't know the if I, dis I discovered them, but I, as a map maker and as a cartographer, I was able to sort of encode them and visualize them in a way that made it sort of common knowledge. If, if it's true then see, that seeing is, is believing, then my, one of my contributions was to put this the economic landscape of basketball into people's heads in a different way. The economic landscape or the actual way the game is played? <laughs> well, I say economic <laughs> landscape because the, the sort of the geography of the playing surface okay. uh, sort of creates an economic landscape. It also trickles down economically to how players are oh, paid. For we'll sure. get to that in a yes, moment. Yes, for sure. Okay, <laughs> that's what I thought you were. So ultimately... The big takeaway right away in the introduction is that the three-pointer changes everything, mm. that it's the most effective way to score, and that more people are taking them than and having success with them than other shots. 
Yes, with one small uh, distinction. The the best shot in the game is still a slam dunk. Uh, arguably a free throw is still a very good uh, play as well. But yeah, three-point shots have become very efficient. Everything else you said is exactly right. And that's why we're seeing the big aesthetic upheaval in the sport that we're in the middle of. The three-pointer itself, though, what, 30-something years old? Yeah, the brief biography of the three-point line starts in 1961, uh, the same year Roger Maris was was breaking Americans' uh, baseball records with with home runs and the biggest story in sports. And this guy, Abe Saperstein, who who is more famous for founding the Harlem Globetrotters, also founded this sort of failed basketball league called the ABL. And in that league, he needed something to distinguish um, his league from other leagues. And he wanted to emulate the, 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 the action of the home run, which was taking America by storm in 1961. So his home run shot was a three-point shot. Uh, and the line he drew at that time, Andy, was the exact same line we have on the NBA playing surface in 2019. Um, and one of the questions I pose in the book are, what are the chances that the exact right line in 1961 when Roger Maris was the biggest story in sports is the, is the right line for us in 2019 with Steph Curry and, and James Harden dominating the sport? So, and then the, the only other data point that's really important to remember is that the NBA added the line in 1979. So this is the 40th anniversary of the three-point line, uh, but it's still rising in importance year over year. One of the things that surprised me is how including or most notably the three-point line how willing to change the game fundamentally to create some kind of outcome the nba seems to be sports are social engineering experiments i mean they that you make rules to create and incentivize behavior and you create other rules to disincentivize other behavior and this is not new and the nba is 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 a very beautiful, very popular sport in 2019, in part because the NBA has constantly updated its rules, um, looked at what was going on, and sort of engineered a rule base and a playing surface to create a better sport over and over and over again. It's a work in progress in the way. So I argue that, you know, if you love the way that basketball looks in 2019, you necessarily are a fan of these rule changes that have sort of dotted the sport's history. But as an outsider, I would think they'd be trying to keep an era, for instance, Michael Jordan and slam dunks, where that's engaging, that created megastars that transcended the NBA. Yes, but business, but, believe it or not, business is better in the NBA in 2019 than it was at the height of Michael Jordan. It's not particularly close. This is a league that has grown internationally uh, in ways that Major League Baseball and, and the National Football League could only dream of. I mean, this sport, sport is big in Europe. It's big in South America. It's massive in, in China. Um, and so business is good. Uh, and the question is, do we sit on our hands because business is good in the face of this giant aesthetic upheaval in the middle of the sport? You call the three-point line the biggest gerrymandering <laughs> in sports. Right. Because they it's, designated that uh, apparently out of thin air. Well, again, I'm a geographer, right. so I have all these analogies that are geographic, including the word sprawl in the title, which I, I borrowed from my home discipline of geography. Uh, but yeah, gerrymandering. I, I say the three-point line redistricted the playing surface. It created this this partition in the middle of the, uh, the scoring area that empowered a whole party of jump shooters to take over the best basketball league in the world. And um, 
that was a crazy decision. I mean, talk about a crazy change in a rule base. Arguably, the forward pass is the only thing that can hold a candle to it in the history of American sports. And it was a great rule change. And I, the three-point line is, is, is opened up the game as intended. Uh, George Mikan, who was commissioner of the ABA, who adopted the line before the NBA, had some poetic language uh, that's worth revisiting. He says the line is going to open up the game and give smaller players a chance. Uh, and he was exactly right. Uh, nowadays, the smaller players, the guards and the wings, are, are running away with MVP awards while centers and power forwards are, are having a hard time clinging on to, to minutes and, 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 and prestige in the NBA. And that's because it's so busy under the basket and so, what, likely to be fouled? Yeah, I mean, the league is full of shooters now, and the actions that are needed to create the shots, these valuable perimeter shots, um, require sort of a blend of athleticism and speed. Um, and at, at 10,000 feet, what, what, what's happened to the league um, is that speed uh, and shooting skill have become disproportionately a lot more valuable than strength and, and size have been. Um, so the kind of athletes that are thriving today's NBA necessarily can thrive in the paint. Don't get me wrong. It's still a tall guy sport. Uh, but they also need to be able to shoot and defend far away from the paint, which lends itself to a more athletic, more versatile player uh, and, and less slow lumbering guys uh, that used to be found in the middle of these playing surfaces. As I understand it, you run all this data, you chart it out, present it at a conference, and the first people to really be interested in it are Mark Cuban, mm. the folks behind the Spurs, and then the Rockets are now the example of what this looks like in day-to-day -day use. <laughs> so <laughs> is it just coincidence that the three Texas teams are the <laughs> most interested in this? Well, I should also say that the conference that you're referencing is the 2012 MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in Boston, which is held every year, which was founded by Daryl Morey, who's the general manager of the Houston Rockets, who has reshaped the game more than perhaps anybody from a front office role uh, in generations. So he is... Probably the person that people around the NBA identify as sort of the the biggest analytics guy in the sports. And so, yeah, he's our Houston guy. You combine him with Harden and Mike D'Antoni, their head coach, and they are playing future ball. Uh, they are bending the game towards the analytical correct version of the sport more than any other team. The, Sp the Spurs obviously are, are, are recognized for being innovative and, and, and championship driven for so long. Um, and I obviously worked in the Spurs front office for three seasons. Uh, and then yes, Mark Cuban, who is a tech guy and a, a very good owner, uh, has created a very stable organization in Dallas, an organization that didn't have much to be proud of before he arrived. Um, and has brought sort of his 21st century business acumen to a team. Um, so the three Texas teams are all noteworthy in this discussion. I have experience with all of them, but it's not a coincidence, to your point. The Texas teams are, are smart, um, and Texas is a really good place to be an NBA fan, in part because the organizations are all functional um, and sort of forward-leaning. What does it look like behind the scenes, for instance, with the Rockets? Right. We know what that looks like on the court. How much is the data driving what we're seeing? Uh, a lot. Without having firsthand expertise, I can tell you that the, 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 the data sets and the analytical reasoning that, that, that is very popular in the Houston organization affects 
not just the shot selection strategies that you're seeing on the court, which they're most famous for, um, but the personnel evaluation, who they're drafting. I mean, Michael Lewis had a chapter in his latest book, uh, The Undoing Project, about uh, Daryl Morey and his draft model. Um, it affects how they uh, acquire free agents, which free agents they prioritize, how much they pay them. Um, all of these decisions are supported by analytical reasoning and, and data processes. Um, similar in, in the Spurs, increasingly so. Um, so it's it's not unusual, but you're right to point out Houston because they are probably um, one of the most analytically driven teams, not just in the NBA, but in all of pro sports. How much smarter do players have to be to just process moving as quickly as they are, all of this information on the fly? Not very. I mean, no pun okay. intended, but this <laughs> this isn't rocket science. I mean, it's still a basketball game, and it's 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 some of our stratagems are a little updated with some new conventional wisdom, but it's, it's not particularly complicated. Um, if anything, it has given them less to think about. And in places like Houston, where there are really only two or three acceptable ways to shoot the ball or places to shoot the ball from, um, it gives them a, a uh, much simpler game. In fact, the Houston Rockets offense is very innovative um, and very efficient. However, it's pretty basic. Um, and for the players involved, there's 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 less to think about than probably in some of the earlier games, uh, earlier teams' offensive strategies. So, I don't think it has affected them very much, other than a, sort of updating conventional wisdom and, and some basic shot selection strategy. I don't think this is trickling down in in ways that makes it harder for individual players to play in the NBA. But if all of this data suggests that there's only a couple places to shoot from and that a team like the Rockets are doing very predictable things shooting from those spots, then wouldn't I as an opponent know exactly what's going to happen, where they're going to be, how they're going to be approaching the game, and then be able to combat that somehow? Or is that the genius of all this? Well, you would think so, but the three-point line is a very big perimeter. Uh, and okay. it's hard, uh, just like in the military, to guard a whole boundary area. And so the two or three places that are very efficient to guard are very spread out, um, from the rim to the three-point line in all directions. So the court is just spread out more. Um, and so in a way, defenses have a lot more ground to cover now um, than they used to. So. You know the Rockets deserve a lot of credit because, as I said, their 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 attack is is very smart and very innovative, relatively simple, um, but terrifying to guard. In part because of their MVP James Harden, who we know what his three or four moves are, but he he can get to one of them no matter what defenses try to do. Um, he can drive to the rim and get to the free throw line. He can drive to the rim and finish near the rim. Uh, he can shoot a step back three, or if defense sends a lot of help, he'll find an open shooter on the edge and kick it out. And he's a very good passer as well. So they've made it a sort of pick-your-poison offense, um, and it's poisonous all the way down. So, you know, credit to the Rockets and what we're seeing uh, from them over the last few years is, is again, a pick-your-poison um, offense that, that really is successful. And then when you run the numbers, the most effective shot in all of basketball is Harden at the free throw line? Yeah. Well, when you look at James Harden's behavior, one of the things that sets him apart is his his, 
His favorite shots were the exact same ones that the analytics community would endorse. Three-point shots, shots near the basket, and his favorite shot of all is the free throw. When he won the MVP award uh, last year for the first time, he was the first MVP in NBA history to have more free throws than field goals at at the time of his award. Uh, And he has led the NBA in free throw shooting six of the last seven years. He's led it in three-point shooting the last two years. Um, so yeah, he, he is very, uh, active. We all know that, but it's this sort of way that he only shoots in a few key ways that is the key to his efficiency. So, you know, one of the things I've written about is he has a tendency to go after three point shooting fouls, which are the most punitive fouls in the game. And if you get a three point shooting foul, that's worth 2.6 points. If, if you shoot as well as he does at the free throw line. So he's, he's a very smart player. Uh, by chasing those whistles, uh, but a lot of people around the league don't necessarily like to watch players chase whistles, and so it's caused a little bit of a controversy. Um, and analytics and aesthetics aren't always compatible, uh, and that's just something that the Rockets, uh, they're a prophecy from the future, I think, and they make us think about how the most analytically correct version of the game may or may not coincide with the most aesthetically pleasing version of the game. Does somebody who's a critic of analytics, is that mostly because they don't like what analytics have done to the game or because they deny, are they science deniers <clears throat> yeah. in a sense? No, they are climate change deniers and they're analytics <laughs> deniers. They're, they're fruit from the same tree. Uh, uh, but also there are people who don't like the trends that have taken over the sport because of analytics, who believe in analytics. And it's those people that I like to remind that analytics are agnostic. We don't have an agenda other than to try to find the smartest ways to play the sport. Um, analytics have just shown a light down onto the playing surface in our sport and to the rule book and revealed some cartoonishly big margins between tactics. Um, and driven the league to a, a world where some of those tactics are very popular now and some are dying on the vine because they're just not useful. They're not efficient. And that's a word that's crept into our discourse since Moneyball came out. The word efficient wasn't in sports discourse 20, 30 years ago. Now it's synonymous with greatness. Um, and and, and it, in a world where efficiency is synonymous with greatness, the league itself... Uh, and the people who engineer the rules need to make sure what's efficient in their sport is great um, and, and, and what's inefficient isn't great uh, because the analytics people are going to come in and find out what's efficient and that's what the sport's going to look like. Look at baseball. They're going through the same thing. Um, so, yeah, I think some of these people are just climate change deniers. It's anti-science folks, uh, and they just don't like numbers in their sports. And I kind of respect that in a weird way, too. Uh, but as an analytics guy, um, I'm quick to remind you that analytics are agnostic here. We don't have an agenda. You made the game board. You made the rules. We're trying to advise people on what are the smartest and dumbest things to do on the court. And given the rules, this is right and this is stupid. What a map lover's map professors and experts make of what you've done with that core knowledge? Um, Well, a lot of people, you know, aren't surprised because in a world obsessed with data and data visualization, it's it's map makers and cartographers that are are in a way the most equipped to handle large spatial data sets. And we've been trained for hundreds of years and developed techniques to, to make 
some of the most potent documents in human history by visualizing spatial data. Um, and in the last 20 years, that's sort of been uh, very important in a world of technology, but it's not necessarily um, at the geographic scale. Um, there's spatial data in your MRI machines. There's spatial data uh, on a basketball court. And so what I've been able to do is sort of leverage these age-old map-making techniques uh, to an unusual scale, the scale of a basketball court. Uh, but folks who, who have studied maps um, and, and taught map-making um, certainly in the last few decades are aware that our skill set can apply to, to these non-geographic scales. Uh, and I think that's really exciting, actually. And, um, you know, whether you're talking about medical data or sports data, I think there's a huge opportunity for people who know how to handle spatial data to contribute to society. I've just done a very trivial thing by mapping basketball players for the last eight years. <laughs> In the sports world, why is basketball a better fit for this than soccer? It's not. I just love basketball. Okay. Um, and people are doing this to, to the to the game of soccer. Basketball, particularly NBA basketball, is very good for me. Um, every year, two hundred thousand shots are taken in the NBA. Some some players take you know a thousand or two thousand shots, and you know over the course of a season, these these signals emerge when you when you make these maps. Um, these structures emerge, um, and, and these these realities that are invisible um, start to start to sort of show up. Uh, and I think that's very fascinating. In some sports, they don't have enough samples to do that. They don't have 200,000 events to, to really map, and they can't get at these structures. But the NBA, like Major League Baseball, has a lot of games, uh, a lot of events within those games. And, and, and in other words, it translates very nicely to statistical treatments, visual treatments, um, that other sports that don't have that much data just, just don't, they don't lend themselves to that very well. I imagine tennis and golf are also sports where you would be able to track points of origin and where they yeah wind up a hundred percent I mean the geography of these these playing surfaces in these games is is really the story I mean so much strategy look at the game of chess you know one of the oldest games we have and it's all about spatial reasoning and understanding who does what and how you can leverage that that space and, and control that space and you know, that strategy in a nutshell, whether you're talking about chess or war or basketball, uh, the, the ability to understand the landscape goes back to, to Sun Tzu and, and knowing the terrain and, and stuff like that. So in, in a really basic way, this isn't new. Uh, this is just an extension of what, what people have done when, when confronted with these sort of spatial problems for, for centuries. When you were in San Antonio working for the Spurs, how much of this was down and dirty analytics versus sharing and teaching them the culture of analytics? Um, I would say there was a lot of sharing. I mean, the Spurs and, and any other functional organization somehow becomes um, greater than the sum of the individual parts. So there's a lot of knowledge exchange, and, and decisions are supported by all different sort of avenues of reasoning. You know, um, and, and to credit Coach Popovich and R.C. Buford, uh, they are very open-minded people. Uh, despite the fact that they've enjoyed a lot of success, they remain obsessed with what's new and how we can get better, and, and that's a credit. And you know, bringing in uh, an, an analytics group and a big analytics department and putting such an emphasis on that reveals that they're, they're sort of interested in that. Um, they want to update their reasoning processes uh, perpetually. So uh, a day-to-day -day experience there was a lot of collaboration uh, within my group, but also outside of that group as well. 
because you've got to ask them to rethink the way they do this thing that they've seen done forever. In some cases, and it's important to note, in other cases, it's just, hey, I can confirm some things you guys have always had hunches about, uh, but with just sort of an empirical uh, lens, you know, and, and that's very powerful as well. Uh, particularly when you tried to win over the hearts and minds of, of people who have done it one way for a long time, confirming hunches uh, that that they have relied on, whether it's um, how many minutes a player should play or, or shot selection strategies, confirming hunches in ideologies that are non-quantitative in nature with quantitative evidence is a very powerful way to sort of indoctrinate people into to, to at least giving you uh, uh, some time, you know. Moneyball illustrated that this stuff is happening. Mm -hmm. Culturally, we became aware that a sport was being played with an emphasis on analytics or that there were analytics behind the scene. How much does the NBA fan know that the experience they're having is so data-driven at this point? Uh, I think <clears throat> fans are, are, I mean, they're short for fanatics. It's, they, they're very passionate in most cases, so I think they're not surprised. I mean, the other thing I would just say with the money ball is sports imitate life in a way, and, and all of our culture is becoming increasingly data-driven and increasingly sort of analytical. And Moneyball, to me, is equal parts sort of a seminal document about how analytics is going to transform front offices. Uh, but equally, it's 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 potentially a case study on how financial capitalism and and the data and the discourse uh, of of the finance world and of the tech world are coming into every day to day thing we do. Um, if you put a picture of your kid up on social media, they quantify how many people like it. Um, this is just something that's pervasive in our society. If you watch the news now. They're talking more and more like CNBC on cable news, and they're talking more and more like CNBC on ESPN. Um, the, the, this is just a subset of an amazing techno-financial revolution that's sort of reshaping our world right now. Um, and, and, and Moneyball, to me, is just a very articulate case study in that uh, at a very special time in 2003 when that book comes out. So, you know, in a way, this is this is very special because it's a story about sports. Uh, but in another way, it's it's just like everything else, like how I get around with my cell phone and, and, and all the tracking and Lyft and Uber and, and, and CNBC and financial discourse and all this stuff is just everything looks like the stock page now. You know what I mean? But while data analysts are agnostic about what they'd like to see the game become, A, you have run at least tests, if not made suggestions on what the game could be. That's For sure. the, the latter part of the book. But also, all throughout it, you seem to have, if not tinges of guilt, <laughs> for what you've created yeah. or influenced. Yeah. Then outright disappointment. Well, look, when I was with what it's become, it's a great question. So, like, when I was at the Spurs, you know, I went from the analytics guy who's trying to find these market inefficiencies, just like Michael Lewis had told us to do. And you know, what's the what's the savviest way, the the shortcut to efficiency? How can I do this? But when you work around a pro basketball team, particularly one run by uh, somebody like Greg Popovich, you quickly realize that basketball is so important to so many people. And I think I was affected by that and started to look at how I can 
improve or give back to the sport and not just try to find shortcuts to efficiency within the sport. Um, and so the book, I, I, I try not to editorialize too much, but I definitely do. Uh, and I, do, I don't like what sort of analytics is doing to the aesthetic, given the fact that the rule base is, is really the one doing it. Um, so that's why it's this constant blend of basketball is beautiful, everybody loves it, well, I love it, um, but it almost adopted this conservationist approach or uh, this aesthetic analytic hybrid approach, which I think is unique in sports discourse, but I think is, is, is going to become bigger. As baseball and basketball both confront um, these looming sort of analytic aesthetics that may or may not be great, what can we do? The answer is in the last chapter of the book is, is the league can leverage the exact same firepower that the teams have done, uh, the teams have leveraged to create these, these new strategies, whether it's in baseball with all the pitching changes or in basketball with all the three-point shots. The league can engineer these sports with the same quantitative methods um, to generate an optimal aesthetic. And it's not up to me to say what that aesthetic is. It's up to the NBA and the consumer and the fans. Um, but to date, since Moneyball framed analytics as an endeavor that one team uses to beat another team, that's largely how it's been portrayed. And one of the things I tried to do in this book is to say, hey, guys, that's, a too, that's too narrow of a frame. We can use this uh, to help engineer a sport that's actually the most beautiful into the future. Because at its core, somebody or something that's so efficient is kind of boring. <laughs> well, I mean, no, you're right. If if there's a music analogy, then a guitar virtuoso, a Joe Satriani, a Steve Vai, right, efficient, but it's all technique and it's boring, right. Whereas a Keith Richards, right, is going to be exciting because you don't know what's coming next. Yeah, and that's why I don't know if the the integration of this financial wisdom and thinking and reasoning into a product that's largely aesthetic is is necessarily good. But Any it's more still than creating this, stars. But no, but in, in, yes, in, in the same way that cinema is, and, and you make no mistake, these studios in Hollywood are looking out at an international box office and not trying to figure out what's the best movie we could make. They're trying to figure out what's the biggest box office take we can make, and that's why it's Avengers all the way down. And and, and there's so many of these franchises, and so little of those traditional feature films that we used to see uh, at Alamo Draft House. Um, so I don't think it's unique to sports, but you're exactly right. Because, look, this is the least analytical sports are ever going to be right now. It's not. <laughs> these are the good old days in a way. So this is the reality. How can we deal with that, that, that these people are going to chase efficiency all the way down to the end of the trail, um, whether it's chasing foul calls or chasing three-point shots? Um, this is the way. So the rule base now, to me, becomes the last hope. And, and understanding that that is actually the game board and, and the people who control the game board are the ones that can control what we're going to see out there when we're turning on the TV and see the basketball versions of, of Keith Richards as opposed to the basketball versions of uh, Joe Satriani. Um, I didn't see you mentioned in here, but does sports betting change because of this? Sports betting has already changed because of all of this stuff. I mean, 
you know, there's there's some friends of mine in the gambling world that have made a lot of money in part because they've started to think and understand the game through these new data sets, through these new approaches, um, before even Vegas did, certainly before the public that bet, bets that puts those lines where they are understood. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the world of gambling is, is arguably the biggest growth area in sports right now, and certainly very quantitative. Um, so they're looking for every uh, every advantage they can get, um, and and certainly that comes down to the best data sets available, the same kind of data sets we talk about in the book. Fundamentally, why should I care about basketball? Fundamentally, you care about basketball because you either played the game or you are drawn to the sort of ability of a human being to do something that you could never do yourself and it's the same way that you know somebody watching Roger Federer just is in awe because they tried to do that on Sunday uh, in their tennis game and they just can't ever do that basketball is very relatable most of us have picked up a ball shot it Uh, a lot of us have played high school basketball or youth basketball or um, played with pickup basketball in college so it becomes relatable uh, to watch somebody, another fellow human being, do something at such an incredible level uh, that that it becomes inspiring in a way about the human race. And that sounds kitschy, but that's one of the reasons you should care about it. The other reason you should care about it is just millions, if not billions, of other people really care about it. It's quickly becoming one of the most popular forms of, of exercise and activity on the planet. Um, and it's cool and it's caught a lot of people's attention and you know like anything whether it's music or or sports or art you know you should probably at least try to understand what all your fellow people are obsessed with (laughs) does the analytics though reduce the athleticism well that's a great question because in the NBA now I think our most efficient plays are not aligned with our most impressive plays um Greatness is a term that in sports usually has meant somebody who is the greatest, the best at doing the most difficult things. And, They're know. the people that we are least likely to be able to replicate the yes. things they do. That's a great way to put it. So Michael Jordan flying through the air or uh, Muhammad Ali knocking out George Foreman. Uh, these are incredible feats that, that, oh my gosh, that's another human being? I didn't know we could do that. Um, that's incredible. Uh, but in basketball, yeah, one of the things with that in mind that's that's a little bit troubling to me is that catching and shooting three-point shots is hard, uh, but it's not as hard as some of the other things that are in the game, including hitting a fadeaway shot over a seven-foot tall guy, uh, flying through the air and, and dunking the ball. Um, but these are literally worth a point more um, than any other field goal that you can get um, in the two-point area. So aligning greatness with success is again it comes back to the the league and the rule base and the playing surface to dictate what are we making great right so that's that's interesting to me when i'm occasionally on a basketball court the only thing i'll do is play horse or pig right or something like that does this change that (laughs) no i hope not i mean well but shouldn't it should my game of horse i'm more likely to win I, you should have a strategy, but you need to know who you're playing against and what your own spots are on the court where you can thrive versus Because it would opponent. be about my own spots, not replicating the spots that seem most successful. Well, your spots and your opponent's spots, of course. So 
Okay. The, the differentiation between your abilities on those on that surface is really the game of horse in a nutshell. But I don't want to infiltrate the, your game of horse, man. Or I, I, I don't want to hear. I, but you know, the thing is, when you go to a playground now, you see ten-year-old kids shooting three-point shots. And when I was a ten-year-old kid, we were always trying to play like Michael Jordan was trying to play, and 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 trying to jump as high as we could, and trying to hit fadeaways like he did. Uh, and now you see him emulating Curry and Harden, which is only natural. Um, so in a weird way, I think the NBA, more than analytics, will drive what people are doing in their backyards and in their playgrounds. I mean, Charles Barkley famously said he wasn't a role model. He is a role model. He was a role model. All these guys are maybe not as human beings, but certainly as sort of these stylistic pillars of the sport. Uh, and kids are going to try to emulate their, their heroes, just like kids try to emulate Keith Richards when they play the guitar or, or whatever it is. You know, I think um, as the NBA evolves, those background games, those backyard games and, and those little uh, youth basketball games are going to sort of mimic what they're seeing at that level. So in a weird way, it does trickle down through the aesthetic of the league into backyard games and, and youth games. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of your work. The data is there because for some reason they were tracking where shots were taken from for 20 years. Right. So, Why? Well, it's just, you know, in the box scores, they like to know if people scored in the paint, if people like to score in, in, from three-point range. So they started tagging the XY coordinates, the Cartesian coordinates of the shot locations in the late 90s. Um, but it wasn't, you're right, it wasn't until I started mapping this data in 2011 um, that this stuff really became mapped in aggregate. At most, you would see a game's worth of shots on a website somewhere. You know, Kobe Bryant was 8 for 20, and here is 8 makes, and here is 12 misses, and it looks like, you know, X's and O's all over the court. Um but nobody, at least in the public domain in 2011 or 2012, was really combining all of Kobe's shots over the course of a year and trying to tease out the, the spatial strengths and weaknesses and tendencies in his game at the season level. Initially, were you curious about players or about teams or about the whole NBA? Initially, I was curious about players because even as a young basketball player, I knew that I was certainly better at some shots than others uh, in different places on the court than others. And I knew that even the best players in the world had those little idiosyncrasies. And I wanted to map them as I, as I became sort of more adept at visualizing spatial data. So I was really in interested in players. However, to really understand those players' idiosyncrasies, you have to know what the league is doing as a whole. Right? You can't sort of contextualize somebody's performance against averages, whether they're abnormal activity rates or abnormally efficient rates, uh, until you know the league average. So I've also been a very obsessed person when it comes to mapping the league as a whole. But you're right. I think the point you brought up is really interesting. So the league starts collecting this data around 2000, and a full decade passes in, in a domain where millions and millions of people are obsessed uh espn is spending millions of dollars a year to try to give people sports content and, and they're not alone and what does that say to me it says a little bit about the state of map making and data visualization in the first decade of this century that it was underutilized particularly in sports um, but it also says that some of these breakthroughs in analytics have more to do with 
sort of applying wisdom from one field to another than they do with these technology breakthroughs. Um, <clears throat> I, the technology I used to do that in 2011 or 12 uh, was also developed 20, 30 years earlier. It wasn't particularly breaking, you know, it wasn't brand new. And we're so obsessed with new, new, new. There's, there's, there's a thousand things waiting to be done right now uh, that would have similar impact. It's just a question of applying the right techniques uh, across disciplines. But if they weren't making those rudimentary X's and O's on paper for you to look at later, then you'd have to go and reconstruct this from films, from the videos of the games. <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing that. We, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing that. Well, nobody probably ever does no. in that case. Well, I mean, some people have charted shots. Uh, there's some assistant coaches I know around the league that literally chart every one of their team shots by hand every year. So some people do do that, and it's important to note that teams have been doing similar stuff um, for, for before we see it in the public domain. Um, but you're exactly right. The NBA deserves credit for being a data-forward organization and, and doing that, even though there wasn't a sort of an intended consequence of, of, of unlocking these, these sort of secrets of, of shooting efficiency when they started doing it. Um, they still did it, and the, and the NBA is really fun to work around because they are sort of progressive. Um, they're always looking for the next thing, um, and often they do stuff way before other sports uh, do it, and whether it's in terms of technology or other things. What are you teaching at your University of Texas class? I am teaching sports analytics at the McComb School of Business, and I love it. So each this this first semester, I was teaching the the MBA students, so the grad students, and we just did a survey of sports analytics. I mean, they're business savvy students, and then they're interested in learning about the sports business and how analytics and how data are sort of transforming uh, the reasoning processes, both on the sports side of these organization and on the business side. Uh, so we did a bunch of case studies and um, challenged them to, to think about how they can leverage the things and the concepts they're learning at business school um, with data and analytics to solve some problems. In theory, on the business side, you've made a lot of people who wouldn't have ordinarily made the kind of money they're making a lot of money. Because not only have you created jobs like you had with the Spurs with every other team, but now guys that weren't stars or wouldn't have been stars in the old NBA are now the guys getting the biggest contracts because they take the kind of shots that you've proven are effective. Yeah, but as I write in the book, uh, the, the trends associated with this, this, this era are certainly um, making a lot of people money. Uh, but it's a relatively zero-sum game. I mean, the pie is kind of getting bigger in the NBA. Uh, but certain other types of players are getting shipped out of the league, and I don't like that at all. And I don't like that the game is becoming more homogenous and less diverse because of some of these obvious strategies that have emerged uh, post-Moneyball in our sport. Um, so I spend a lot of the book trying to figure out ways to, to you know, analytically preserve some of that natural organic positioning uh, of basketball players. There's five traditional position groups, point guard, shooting guard, small forward, uh, power forward and center and one of the ways I argue is like we should always have those positions in our sport and they should all be able to thrive they should all be able to be MVP of the league um, but to your point yes yeah, some guys are getting rich because they can shoot now and that's great um, but that to, to your earlier point that might not be the most beautiful thing in the sport that might not be the most impressive thing in the sport um, 
And I think basketball's at its best when it's very diverse. Different kinds of players are thriving in different ways. Different kinds of teams are winning in different ways. And, and, and there's this opportunity to, to, to compete in several different ways with several different kinds of superstars. Um, and we're still there right now, don't get me wrong, but if present trends continue, that's decreasing uh, to an extent that I'm not comfortable with. And so one of the main questions we end the book with is like, how can we extend the game into into the future um, and sort of maintain that positional diversity and that, that, that sort of heritage that's made this sport so great? Um, Which is an extension of the undercurrent of, oh, whoops, maybe I created a monster. <laughs> it's an extension of that, but it's also an extension of the spirit of basketball, which has been innovative since the start. And if basketball never changed major rules um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, I wouldn't be sitting here today because I wouldn't care about basketball. And basketball has, has adapted to the times. It's evolved. Uh, it's like that famous cathedral in Barcelona that's 400 years old and they're still building it. It's a masterpiece in progress. Um, I think however, however you look at it, there's a way to go into the future where this kind of analytical reasoning that's, that's pervasive in sports and everywhere now in our society can be best friends with aesthetics. There's a way that we can sort of adopt an analytical um, supplement to our, our rulemaking and to our games engineering that can create a very beautiful uh, version of the sport where there's two kinds of value, values that are key to this discussion. There's the traditional sort of ethical values and what our sport and what our league values, um, athleticism, teamwork, fair play, all those quote-unquote values. And then there's the sort of quantitative connotation of that word where the analytical community says this is a very valuable shot or this is a very valuable player. Bringing those two forms of values together is really the conversation I'm trying to start. How do we align the values, the sort of ethical version of values with those sort of quantitative values? Because the quantitative values are just getting warmed up. And we're playing a game of the sport where we're just trying to maximize those, those values and minimize the inefficiencies. Uh, so that's really... And it's not ethical to deny the science. No, of course it <laughs> so isn't. So that's in conflict too. All right, and it's it's not the first time this chore has had. I mean, the, the Federal Reserve has to create these rules for people to, to, to base an economy around. And, you know, it's just, a, again, we're financial now. The whole world is financial discourse. So how can we align uh, those two values? You have these suggestions or these test runs at the end of the book. I was reading recently a Times story about the Long Island Ducks. Did you see that? They're a minor league baseball team who play sort of a future version of the game. They're a test because they're using all of these rule changes that eventually Major League Baseball would like to see how right. that plays out. And it sounds like that's what the ABA was. Right. And what these basketball leagues that failed running concurrently with the NBA were. Yeah. Is that something we need? Is some place where we can test what the yeah. new stuff looks like outside of a graph or a chart? Oh, hundred percent. Because you don't want you don't want to go into to this thing with unintended consequences. And, and the history of the world is full full of unintended consequences from 
from decisions that seem smart on paper that were actually very foolish in practice. So, um, you know, I think the Atlantic League in baseball is messing with where the pitcher's mound is and <clears throat> and some other rules that are trying to combat the very sort of same sort of crises in baseball that we're, we're approaching in basketball. And the NBA has the, the, the Gatorade League, the G League, which is their minor league. They, they have a, a team here in Austin. Um, but they have been uh, very experimental in that environment. Um, so it exists. It does exist. Okay. And I think if we ever get to a place where we're experimenting with a new three-point line uh, or some of the other rule changes proposed in the book, uh, that would be a perfect environment for it because you're right. You don't want to go in with, with, with going blind. We have to beta test some of this stuff. And, and fortunately, our, our sports have these other leagues where we can, we can try some wacky stuff and see if it's actually good or it turns out that's bad for the game. We'll end here. How does this change the history book? So how do you measure in a game that changes this fast or that we now know people are playing differently because they have the data? How do you measure somebody playing now against somebody playing? Because in baseball, that's relatively easy to do. It's a fool's errand in baseball as well. I mean, whether okay. you're saying Babe, Babe Ruth didn't play against black players, you know, uh, Mickey Mantle didn't have this, that, or the other thing. They didn't have weightlifting when Mickey Mantle was playing. Uh, you know, the, the, it's a fool's errand. I think it's very tempting, and the sort of quantitative apparatus associated with sports sort of lures you into thinking you can do that. But you can't do that. These things, any more than you compare who's the best president of all time based on some kind of economic study you know there's so many other factors um historical context in 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 basketball has been deformed by so many rule changes including the three-point shot uh including some other rule changes like hand checking um defense of three seconds um goaltending was legal before it wasn't i mean these are major major tactical changes that 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 happen and strategic changes and points are, are a lot easier to come by now than they were in the sport 30 years ago so you know, you see people comparing Michael Jordan's best season to James Harden's current season, and that's just ridiculous because Michael played in a, in a sport that was a lot more physical um, and a lot harder to get places as a guard than, than the one that James and Steph are playing. So I don't think people should really be leaning on numbers uh, to, to try to compare, compare across arrows in any sport, um, even though it's tempting to do so. Um, but, you know... At the end of the day, people are going to do that, and I would just hope that they, they sort of contextualize that with understanding that the landscape is different. And basketball is awesome because every decade it's different, um, and it's certainly different this decade. So how do, we, how do we engineer the game that is most beautiful and most entertaining? I think that's more important than trying to engineer a game that then I can compare today's players back against uh, players who played 30, 40 years ago. Thank you. Thank you. You'll find Sprawl Ball wherever it is you buy your books, and you can learn more about Kurt Goldsberry at kurtgoldsberry.com. In the meantime, check out our barbecue midterm report in our May issue and see if your favorite made our list of the 25 best new barbecue joints in Texas. And, of course, there's much more at texasmonthly.com. We'd love it if you consider subscribing to our show, leaving a comment or rating it wherever you found us, maybe even telling a friend. I'm Andy Langer, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here. And thanks in advance for coming back next time.